Some voices in this podcast were generated by AI for additional diversity. Rest assured, everything has been translated, edited, and voiced by humans for quality assurance. Enjoy the show. The 23rd of February 2022 seemed to drag on forever. It seemed like it couldn't get any worse. All sorts of intelligence agencies had spent the last few weeks trying to give President Volodymyr Zelensky the date when the full-scale Russian invasion would definitely begin. These dates rolled by the 16th, 19th, 22nd of February without anything happening. The night of the 23rd to 24th of February was said to be the next possible date for the invasion's start. But would it materialize? And if it did, what would it look like? What forces would be deployed? Would the Russians advance openly or continue the proxy attacks under the flags of puppet regimes in occupied eastern Ukraine of the past eight years? Questions proliferated and the people expected their president to have the answers. Zelensky and his team chose to conceal the military preparations and do their best to calm the public. The meeting with Ukraine's oligarchs and leading business owners that took place on Bankova Street, the street in Kyiv where the office of the president is located, on the evening of the 23rd of February was a major part of this campaign to reassure the public. The meeting aimed to address the question of whether or not the Great War would indeed happen. The calm demeanor and smiles on the faces of the business people leaving the office of the president in their expensive cars to go home, instead of straight to the airport to leave the country, seemed to suggest that Zelensky had managed to convince them that the invasion wasn't imminent, or at least that it wasn't about to begin that night. But Zelensky himself didn't seem calm at all when he met with his speechwriters later that night, at around 9pm, to outline his next public address. Those in the room with him that night say that the president was intensely focused, like someone driving a car at night. That speech was different from many that came before it. In light of the expected invasion of Putin's forces, Zelensky chose to appeal to the Russian people. Zelensky turned out to be more sincere in this address to the people of the aggressor country than he had been during his countless speeches and meetings in the days leading up to it. Perhaps that came as a surprise even to himself. I appeal to Russian citizens as a citizen of Ukraine, he began. We share over 2,000 kilometers of border. Your forces have gathered by this border, almost 200,000 military personnel and thousands of combat vehicles. Your government has approved their next step, advancing into the territory of another country. This step could mark the beginning of a great war on the European continent. We don't need war, neither a cold war, nor a hot one, nor a hybrid one. But if we have forces advancing on our country, if they try to take away our country, our freedom, our lives, and the lives of our children, we will defend ourselves. We won't be on the offensive, but we will defend ourselves. When you carry out your offensive, we will be there to meet you. You won't see us turn our backs and flee. You will see our faces. 
The address was shared on Zelensky's social media around midnight as the president and the key members of his team left for their homes. A thousand-faced monster was already stirring, menacing, and unseen near the 2,000-kilometer-long border between Ukraine and Russia. A Russian soldier later captured by Ukrainian forces described the moments before the invasion as follows. On the evening of 23rd of February, the unit commander lined us up and said, you'll be able to go back home in four days' time. The Ukrainians won't fight for their oligarchs. As everyone said, we wanted to capture Kyiv in three days. We are on the brink of World War III. You're listening to 2402, The Invasion Reconstructed, Episode 1, Preparing for the Russian Invasion. First things first, here's the brief idea of these days' newscast in Ukrainian national air. Russia is amassing troops on the border with Ukraine, and this is unrelated to any training exercise. This was reported by the reputable publication The Washington Post, citing sources among American and European officials. It has been said that officials who are monitoring the movement of equipment are concerned about another redeployment of Russian troops to regions adjacent to Ukraine. Media outlets have published satellite images of Russian troops massing on the border with Ukraine. The satellite images, taken on the 1st of November, were published by Politico. They show a cluster of armored units, tanks, and self-propelled artillery along with ground troops. As for the information disseminated, unfortunately, by the Western media about the concentration of Russian troops near our borders, this information is not true. Uh, what I would say is we continue to watch uh, and monitor unusual Russian military activity near Ukraine. The Russian Foreign Ministry has released a document that has been submitted to NATO headquarters and U.S. government circles on its vision of future security in Europe. Putin is demanding the maximum. The movement of our troops on our own territory, I emphasize our territory, is presented as a threat of a Russian invasion, in this case of Ukraine. The Baltic states and other neighboring countries also seem to feel that they are in danger. On what grounds, it is not very clear. In any case, this is used as a justification for building policies unfriendly. U.S. citizens should immediately leave Ukraine because of the Russian invasion threat. This was stated by U.S. President Joe Biden on NBC. Finland and New Zealand have now joined the list of countries issuing the same advice. Putin convenes the Russian Security Council. The Kremlin leader will hold an extraordinary meeting today. The agenda is expected to be announced later. Are you proposing to start a negotiation process? Uh, no, um, I... Speak plainly. I will support the proposal to recognize it. I support the proposal to incorporate the Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic into the Russian Federation. We're not discussing that, we're talking about whether to recognize their independence or not. Russian President Vladimir Putin has recognized the sovereignty of the so-called LPR and DPR. I remember I didn't get home until very late. We had lots of meetings. I think we had a meeting of the National Security and Defense Council. 
We were all talking about that. We set out the relevant documents and agreed on plans of action. We knew that the entire state should come together as one if the invasion began. Everyone ought to be in their place. We worked on a few things with the National Bank, including things to do with the National Reserve, to ensure we had a financial backbone. Let's just say that everything was in good order. Zelensky recalls getting home on the last day of peace in 2022. Ukraine's defense intelligence anticipated that the Russian invasion might begin on the morning of the 24th of February. Though Zelensky had spent all of the previous day trying to convince the country that the situation was under control, that evening was the first time he felt a sense of grave danger. Enemy forces were preparing for an attack and could no longer conceal those preparations. Andriy Yermak, head of the office of the President of Ukraine, told Ukrainska Pravda about a revealing incident from that night. I left the office of the President at 1.30 in the morning. The President also left at around 1 a.m. We were in meetings until around then. I remember getting a call from Oleksiy Reznikov, then Ukraine's defense minister, around two or three in the morning, just as I got home. He told me he got a call from the Belarusian defense minister who said he thought Reznikov should urgently contact his Russian counterpart. Reznikov told him he maintained no communication with the Russian defense minister and asked what was going on and why he should call him. I can't tell you, replied the Belarusian defense minister. Then it was clear something was afoot. Something was indeed afoot, but no one knew exactly what would happen. Most military and political higher-ups agreed that a large escalation was probably being planned in the Donbass. That was where the majority of Ukrainian forces were deployed. Heated arguments broke out when someone suggested Russia might advance on other fronts. Was it possible that Russia might launch an offensive from Belarusian territory? Might Belarus take part in the offensive? Would Russia launch an attack from Crimea? Or would it continue hiding behind the backs of its henchmen? This war turned out to be truly large-scale. Russia waged it in the open. Many analysts believe that Putin saw a window of opportunity for himself and for Russia, the only opportunity to capture Ukraine. This window of opportunity was determined by the world being distracted by the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, the U.S. weakness in Afghanistan, and German Chancellor Angela Merkel, Europe's de facto leader, leaving her post. With half of Europe depending on Russian gas and oil, Moscow had accumulated several hundred billion dollars of reserves that would help it weather Western sanctions. Putin also believed his army to be the world's second greatest army, especially after its successes in Crimea, the Donbass, and Syria. Valery Zaluzhny, commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian armed forces, said in an interview that Russia had been accumulating resources for a long time ahead of the full-scale invasion. According to my estimates, they were vigorously building up troops, equipment, and ammunition. I think they had a three-month reserve to achieve their goals. Putin and Russia couldn't pursue a long-term escalation involving stationing lots of military personnel and equipment near the Ukrainian border forever. For the Kremlin, the choice was between pulling its forces back to Khabarovsk 
Ussurisk, and other Russian cities, or going all the way. There was another option, contained escalation, which seemed the most plausible. Ukraine's defense intelligence chief, Kirillo Budanov, thinks that this scenario could have been much worse for Ukraine. It's simple. Putin would escalate in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Negotiations would begin. During the negotiations he would escalate further, carrying out several high-precision attacks on certain Ukrainian facilities and plunging the country into chaos. Following that, he could force Ukraine to agree to the conditions he wanted. That was quite logical. Everyone told him that was a good option for Russia. The not-so-good option was to launch a direct attack. He chose the latter. The British newspaper The Times reported that Russia approved the war in Ukraine, in principle, as early as late summer 2021. According to The Times, only a limited number of people knew about Putin's plans. Four men, three of whom were former or current directors of the Federal Security Service, FSB, were to play a central role in leading Russia to war. Putin himself, Nikolai Patrushev, chairman of the Security Council and Putin's KGB colleague since 1975, Alexander Bortnikov, Putin's old St. Petersburg University classmate and FSB head, and Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu. Of the latter three, it was Patrushev and Bortnikov who were the prime political movers, with Shoigu being the sometimes hesitant executor. Neither the members of the Russian State Duma nor Russian ministers, heads of state corporations or Putin's oligarchs' friends could say if there would really be a full-scale war or if it was all a bluff. By mid-February, Russia prepared everything it needed to start a full-scale war. Ruslan Leviev, the founder of the Conflict Intelligence Team, a military analysis and investigative organization that has been tracking the movements of the Russian army since November 2021, said in an interview in February 2022 that his organization became more and more certain that Russia was preparing for a full-scale war. We had been seeing a number of red flags since November 2021. For example, infantry troops, but not assault forces, would be deployed to the Poganovo training center near Voronezh, transferred to the Yelnia training ground in Smolensk Oblast, or deployed near Kursk. Infantry wouldn't be deployed in combat first. Assault troops always lead the way. But they weren't there initially. Then the assault troops arrived. When Russia had assault troops lined up and ready to go, it seemed it didn't have air defense forces. After some time, air defense forces materialized. And for a while there were no field hospitals, but after some time they appeared too. And so on and so forth. Command posts, sapper units, tankers, fuel trucks, and train cars carrying ammunition and shells. Then the last piece of the puzzle, according to Leviev, was put into place six days before the Russian invasion. The last thing was putting in place potential occupation forces, forces that would assume the role of military police, the Russian Guard forces. We didn't even consider this strictly necessary, yet this too was done. This wasn't just a formality. A huge number of these troops were gathered. It was insane. 
I was shocked at the sight of vehicles carrying water cannons and equipment for clearing away barricades and other types of barriers among the Russian guard convoys moving towards the Ukrainian border. It was evidence of them planning to fight partisan movements and stamp out protests in the occupied territories. On the 23rd of February, Roman Dudin, head of the security service of Ukraine office in Kharkiv Oblast, said Russia had procured 45,000 body bags for transporting the bodies of the dead soldiers. By that point, any pretense of the mobilization being a bluff had almost completely eroded. As of February 12th, the total number of Russian troops along the borders in Belarus and in the occupied Donbass and Crimea amounted to 87 tactical battalion groups, or about 148,000 troops, including air and naval components. Within a week, the number of Russian troops had increased as the permanent representative of the United States to the OSCE, Michael Carpenter, said on February 18th. We assess that Russia has probably massed between 169,000 and 190,000 personnel in and near Ukraine, compared with about 100,000 on January 30th. This estimate includes military troops along the border, in Belarus, and in occupied Crimea, Russian National Guard and other internal security units deployed to these areas, and Russian-led forces in eastern Ukraine. While Russia has sought to downplay or deceive the world about their ground and air preparations, the Russian military has publicized its large-scale naval exercises in the Black Sea, Baltic Sea, and Arctic Ocean. Russia has publicly said that the Black Sea exercise alone involves more than 30 ships, and we assess that amphibious landing ships from the Northern and Baltic fleets were sent to the Black Sea to augment forces there. About 25 tactical battalion groups were in occupied Crimea, and about 47 were along the northeastern border. In early February, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said that the deployment of Russian troops to Belarus was the largest since the Cold War, and that NATO expected up to 30,000 Russian troops to arrive. On February 10th, the joint exercises of the armed forces of Russia and Belarus, Allied Resolve 2022, began and were to end on the 20th of February. The Russians themselves said that 9,000 of their troops were participating in the exercise. In an interview with Ukrainska Pravda, Ukrainian Defense Minister Oleksiy Reznikov said that on the 20th of February, the intelligence services counted up to 10,000 Russian soldiers in Belarus. But their number increased rapidly on the night of February 23rd to 24th. We knew for sure that there were 3,000 people in one city and 7,000 in another in Belarus. The offensive was not carried out by the forces that participated in the exercise. The offensive was carried out by forces that they transferred by heavy transport aircraft from the territory of the Russian Federation to Belarus. It was done overnight. The U.S. security and defense forces have been discussing the possibility of a Russian invasion of Ukraine since autumn 2021. This narrative dismayed and confused Ukrainian officials. All but one of them, that is. 
Military Times published an extensive interview with Ukraine's Defense Intelligence Chief Kirillo Budanov in November 2021. In it, Budanov said that Russia was preparing for an invasion of Ukraine between late January and early February 2022. Military Times even shared a map made by Ukraine's defense intelligence with arrows marking possible directions of attack. According to the map, Russian forces would advance on Kyiv and Lviv from Belarus in the north, would head to Kharkiv and Donbass from the east, and would set out from Crimea and attempt to capture Odessa and Mariupol. This news did not cause a great stir in Ukraine. The Russian president's spokesman Dmitry Peskov called the information shared by Ukrainian and Western special services about the potential invasion plans hysteria. In December 2021, the German tabloid Bild shared another map which outlined similar directions of attack and reiterated Russia's intentions of fully conquering Ukraine. At the time, many people made fun of the map, saying that Bild was not a serious news source. Military experts, too, were skeptical, saying that such plans seemed too complicated, being more reminiscent of large-scale operations in World War II, and that if Russia had enough strength, it would just start a new operation in Donbass. Most military personnel and experts were indeed preparing for that scenario. For example, the head of the State Border Service, Major General Serhii Deineko. Right up until the final moments, I didn't believe that there could be an invasion from Crimea. We know Putin and his weakness for using false flags, miners, and so on. Miners being a reference to the mining community in the Donbass, which Russia has often sought to manipulate for propaganda purposes, bolstering claims that there is support for Russia in the territory. We were certain that the invasion would come from Belarus, from the Chernobyl direction. We were also certain about what would happen on the border of Kharkiv and Luhansk oblasts, where the enemy would enter the territory of Ukraine to surround and eliminate our group in the Joint Forces Operations area. Joint Forces Operation is the term used since 2018 by the Government of Ukraine and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe to refer to combat activity against Russian military forces and pro-Russian fighters in parts of Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts, replacing the earlier term anti-terrorist operation. From the territory of Belarus, they could attack not as the Russian army, but wearing the insignia of Belarus in Belarusian uniforms. And as for the attack from Crimea, there is no one but Russians there. Defense Intelligence Chief Kirillo Budanov told Ukrainska Pravda in an interview that he was convinced the option of direct, open aggression was chosen by Putin personally. Putin made the final decision to start hostilities at around 3 p.m. on the 23rd. There was still some hesitation and ongoing preparation until noon on that day. He could have changed his mind at any point before that moment. He made the decision himself, I want to emphasize that. No one had any influence on his decision. Moreover, on the day the war began, he personally contacted the commanders of all groups, received a formal report on readiness for the start of the invasion, and formally issued the order to commence the military aggression.
Ніхто до кінця, що відбувається, не знав. But no one really knew what was happening. They really didn't. No matter what our intelligence told us, no one knew the details. We were all preparing for different events. We made preparations. Different intelligence agencies, different states, our partners, made their own preparations and issued their own warnings. And no one had more information than we did. There was nothing other than what they had told us. Zelensky insisted in an interview. The armed forces of Ukraine in early 2022 were very different from the Ukrainian army in 2014. However, compared to the enormous Russian army, Ukraine still had rather limited resources. The difference in the number of missiles, aircraft and pieces of heavy military equipment was particularly striking. Given its dominance in the sky and the fact that its forces outnumbered Ukraine's on the ground several times over, Russia wanted to secure a sudden, unequivocal and quick victory. Only the Ukrainian command really knew the Russian forces in detail. If they didn't know everything, they certainly knew enough to counter the ace up Russia's sleeve, the surprise element of blitzkrieg tactics. While the country's political leadership hesitated, its military commanders not only saw the war approach, but, as the saying goes, had a gut feeling it would happen. Perhaps this feeling was most accurately summed up by Valery Zaluzhny, the commander-in-chief of the armed forces of Ukraine, in an interview with Time. There's no mistaking the smell of war. It was already in the air. That's why, as Ukrainian news website reporters found out, just a month before the invasion, Zaluzhny gathered his closest circle of commanders and said, Not all of us believe that the Russians will attack, but I do. Evil cannot be negotiated with, so get ready to fight. Serhii Deneko, head of the State Border Guard Service of Ukraine, stresses that their intelligence also obtained information that the invasion would indeed take place. Yes, Yes, Western intelligence warned us, and we were very receptive to this information. We have our own border intelligence service which works very effectively in neighboring countries, primarily Russia and Belarus. The Border Guard Service informed the senior military and political leadership of the state. I briefed the president two weeks before the start of the invasion, telling him that there would be a war, that Russia would attack from the territory of Belarus through the Chernobyl zone. We were able to fully monitor certain representatives of the Russian military and political leadership. The date of the full-scale invasion was postponed. First it was the 19th of February, then the 22nd. The Russian forces were waiting. They were ready. We recorded the Russian troops who were in Belarus for training exercises, as they were told, beginning to call their families and say goodbye to them as early as the 12th of February. We intercepted these conversations. Ukrainian forces weren't just waiting for Putin to attack. Training and preparation had begun on all key fronts of the possible invasion. Apparently, the biggest ones were along the northern border, where defense drills such as Blizzard 2022 took place, which Zelensky himself also visited. As Major General Viktor Nikoliuk, the commander of Operational Command Pivnich, North, mentioned in an interview with Suspilne, 
In many respects, these exercises were a factor in driving home the reality of war among the military. The absurdity of this attack, the very use of rockets, aircraft and artillery in the 21st century, all of this raised doubts. But when our exercises began, I was more inclined to believe the idea that the invasion would happen. During these exercises, we practiced the movement of units during long-distance marches of more than 300 kilometers. Other intensive work was being carried out on the other side of the country by the commander of Operational Command Pivden, South, Major General Andriy Kovalchuk. In an interview with Glavcom, a news outlet, he recalled, for the last two weeks before the 24th of February, I slept in my office. That is, I was on duty around the clock. We conducted exercises, brought groups to the shores of the Black Sea, dug in, took up positions, mined the sea coast, and fortified accessible areas against amphibious landings. At that time, I had the 28th Brigade under my command. It had just left the Joint Forces Operation Area and had not yet recovered its combat capability. So for two weeks leading up to the invasion, they were on exercises. Our artillery was deployed to firing positions. Units went ashore. In short, we were preparing. Those military units that were under my command and warehouses containing weapons were being deployed. Colonel General Alexander Sierski the commander of Ukraine's ground forces had by then already taken the first steps to prepare the defenses around Kyiv. The Air Force prepared reserve airfields for combat aircraft and moved their anti-aircraft defense equipment. Much of this was done even without the knowledge of the country's political leadership, which saw everything as a Russian provocation and incitement. Defense Intelligence Chief Budanov recalls that his special forces received weapons on the 23rd of February. On the 23rd, our special purpose unit was armed and dispersed. The assault unit went to Hostomel airfield because we had intercepted clear plans for how the operation would begin. And the main element of the operation was to land at Hostomel to make a quick approach to Kyiv. Basically, this plan of the Russians was based on raising the Russian flag over the office of the president by no later than the end of the third day. We understood that if we delayed this landing and allowed the Ukrainian armed forces to deploy their troops, the whole plan would be thwarted from the very beginning. On the 23rd of February, the day after Russia recognized the independence of its puppet republics within the Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts of Donbass, the Verkhovna Rada imposed a state of emergency throughout the country. During the debates in Parliament that day, the Secretary of the National Security Council, Oleksiy Danilov, uttered an unexpectedly prophetic phrase. I remember the first time the MPs met in the office of the chairman of the Verkhovna Rada. They discussed the decision of the National Security Council. They said, it seems to stipulate a number of restrictions. We don't like it. I was sitting there thinking, God, people, what are you thinking? What restrictions are you talking about? We'll be at war tomorrow or the day after. You and I will be making completely different decisions tomorrow. At 4.30 Kyiv time on the 24th of February, Russian TV channels broadcast Putin's emergency speech in which he announced the start of a special military operation, or, to avoid euphemisms, 
a war with Ukraine. The further expansion of NATO and the military development of the territory of Ukraine that has begun is unacceptable for us. The point, of course, is not about NATO itself. It is only an instrument of U.S. foreign policy. The problem is that in the territories adjacent to us, our own historical territories, an anti-Russia, which is hostile to us, which has been placed under complete external control, is being intensively manned by the armed forces of NATO countries and is pumped up with cutting-edge weaponry. We see that the forces that carried out a coup d'etat on Ukraine in 2014 seized power and are maintaining it solely via essentially staged elections, have definitively abandoned the idea of settling the conflict peacefully. Russia's clash with these forces is inevitable. It is only a matter of time. They are getting ready and waiting for the right moment. Now they're also laying claim to nuclear weapons. We won't allow this to happen. Russia cannot feel safe, develop, or exist with a constant threat emanating from the territory of modern Ukraine. Circumstances require us to take decisive and immediate action. The People's Republics of Donbass have reached out to Russia with a request for help. In light of this and in accordance with Chapter 7, Article 51 of the UN Charter, with the authorization of the Russian Federation Council and in pursuance of the treaties of friendship and mutual assistance with the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic, ratified by the Federal Assembly on the 22nd of February this year, I have made a decision to conduct a special military operation. Its goal is to protect the people who have been subjected to abuse and genocide by the Kyiv regime over the past eight years. We will strive for the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine, and also to bring to justice those who committed numerous bloody crimes against civilians, including citizens of the Russian Federation. In this regard, I appeal to the citizens of Ukraine. No matter how hard it is, please understand this. And I call for cooperation in order to turn this tragic page as soon as possible and move forward together without letting anyone meddle in our affairs and our relations, but to forge them on our own in order to create the conditions necessary to overcome difficulties and to reinforce our unity from within, despite existing state borders. This is the future I believe in for us. I must also appeal to the military personnel of the Ukrainian armed forces. I urge you to immediately lay down your arms and go home. All soldiers who comply with this demand will be able to leave the combat zone unhindered and return to their families. The regime currently ruling over the territory of Ukraine will be entirely responsible for any possible bloodshed. While Putin's address was being prepared for broadcast, the first shelling and the first battles were already taking place on the border. Serhii Deyneko, head of Ukraine's border guard service, recalls, 
Everyone believes that the invasion began at 4 a.m., but this isn't quite true. The invasion actually began at 3.40 at the site of the Luhansk border detachment. This is the Milove district where my detachment is stationed. Russian forces attacked the detachment, a battle ensued, and immediately we had the first fatalities in this full-scale war. At around four in the morning, I reported to the interior minister that my subordinates were already fighting on three fronts, that convoys were approaching. I understood that he was reporting to the president. I sent a text to the president at 5.17 in the morning. Good morning, dear Mr. President. Allow me to report. This is full-scale military aggression on the part of the Russian Federation. A number of checkpoints have been fired upon. Grad multiple launch rocket systems are firing from their territory. Jet aircraft can be heard flying over the Chernobyl zone. Grad MLRS are also firing from Crimea. It's currently five in the morning. My detachments are taking up their positions. At the same time, in all corners of the country, people began to wake up to Russia's first large-scale missile attack. A few hours later, an eerie and unfamiliar howl rang out over the sleepy cities. These were the first air raid sirens to be sounded in many decades. We could hear explosions. I was ready at the time. I was almost leaving, recalls President Zelensky. I received calls before the explosions that we heard. I received the signal a little earlier before the explosions started. We were ready for this, so our intelligence in the military were watching. We understood where the risk of an attack could come from. That's why, as soon as the preparations started there and shots were fired marking the start of the invasion, I received a call. First Lady Olena Zelenska remembers that it was those explosions that woke her up. I remember that I was woken up by strange noises outside the window, just like everyone else, I guess. It was dark, it was night then and I saw that Volodymyr was not around. I found him in another room. He was already dressed, wearing a suit but no tie. I asked what was going on, and all he said was, it's begun. You've been listening to the first episode of 2402, The Invasion Reconstructed, a podcast by Ukrainska Pravda, Consider subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or via RSS on Captivate.fm. Please rate and leave comments under this podcast. It will help it to break through the filters to the widest audience possible. To be continued...